It is uh, October 16th, 2013. This is the baby dedication of Hudson Adarmis. And uh, you can see that we called it to train up or to dedicate. And we'll talk more about that as we go. We're going to put Proverbs 20, 25 on the screen. This is, it is a trap. Can y'all see this? It's okay? Because we can dim lights if you can't. It is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. I don't know what your upbringing was like, but my parents were absolute heathens. They, they loved me, I'm sure. Uh, I, as much as they were able, I'm sure they did the very best they could. But to us, a baby dedication was you drag it to the preacher that maybe you saw at the last family member's funeral, and if he prays for you, then you got a blessing and, and you moved on. That is not really uh, scriptural. And not only is it not scriptural, we're supposed to count the cost of the things that we do before we do them. The result of this is we can be confident that we've heard from God, that we know what God's will is, and that when we've dedicated something to the Lord, it is the direction the Lord wants us to go. I'd like to say that we should be confident and informed. Amen? Amen. We're going to avoid this trap. So in Luke 14, we see these words. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and he's not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish it. This is the only slide tonight that does not have Adarmes children or Jansen or Adarmes family members in it. Whose family members are these? These are mine. The top one in the left here is Abby. She snuck into her mother's closet and got a bra. Yeah, she was about two. I'm going to keep that until she's 40 when she gets married. And uh, we'll share it then. Under that is her first day of school, you know, so she's about five. Under that is Gabriel coming home from his first day of school. And to the far right is Judah uh, somewhere around the age eight or nine. Now, you're the community of believers, and, uh, and I pastor you. You know my family. You watch us do things well and some things not so well, and we're learning and growing together. When Christians raise children that don't love the Lord, what do people say? The church is full of hypocrites. When our kids profess one thing in church and go out and live another thing, it's often reflective of what they've seen their parents doing. For that reason, we take really seriously how we raise our children. We believe that ministry is founded in a home and that a home life is what provi provides the platform for you to minister out of. So it's important to us that the Adarmes family, as they're raising their children, think of these things and that we consider how we help them. It's important to us that we all pull together to produce something that God wants. He wants godly offspring. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right, there are benefits to doing this right. In Psalm 102, the 28th verse, we see the children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. Guys, God works generationally. What one man 
learns and grows progressively throughout his life, he's supposed to pass to his children in a relatively short period of time, maybe the first 18 years of their life, so that they pick, off, pick up very much where he left off. God builds that way. Our job is to teach our children to live in the presence of God. By the time you get to Psalm 112, verses 1 through 2, we see, praise the Lord. Let's praise Yahweh. Blessed is the, the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commandments. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Our kids are not supposed to be ordinary. I don't believe that Hudson is going to grow up to be an ordinary kid any more than I believe Weston is going to grow up to be an ordinary kid any more than I expect my children to be ordinary. They are not merely natural. They are called to a supernatural standard. And they're going to learn it from watching us. That we are not limited by the math this world lives by. We believe that five loaves and two fishes can multiply with this touch. They're not limited by simply the laws of Newtonian physics. I believe that the king of kings can touch a man's open eye sockets and God can make eyeballs. Our children will learn to do what we do as we watch our father doing what he does. You know, Jesus made the bold statement in the Gospel of John, I only say what I hear my father saying. I only do what I see my father doing. I want to ask, if that was the litmus test for us, how would we do? And if our children only said and did the things that we say and do, what would the world think of our households? See, we are to be reflective of the king of kings. And it carries with it great benefit. They will be mighty in the land. Is there anybody out there that thinks that the nation's not going the direction we'd like it to go? There's only three people out there. Did you guys join a union since we last met? What happened? If the nation's not going the direction that we want it to go, whose fault is that? Every breakdown that we point to, and maybe we blame our political leaders for, started in a home somewhere. The foundation that you build on as an adult started somewhere. I believe our kids are supposed to be mighty in the land. I trust Alex and Haley to raise godly children. I trust you to gather around them. I trust their family members. I don't know all of them, but everything that I've heard about them is these are Bible-believing, God-fearing people. We need this. We need it more than flowers need sunshine and the rain. We live in a generation that has learned to laugh at the things of God. It's openly mocked. The very founding principles of our society are being torn out of the courtrooms, and no one even raises uh, a protest. I believe we can raise a generation of children that are different than that. Proverbs 17, 6. Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. One of the things that you can't help but notice, even as a new Christian, as you turn to the first five books of Moses, and you begin to read, eventually you'll get to Exodus 20, or you'll get to Deuteronomy 5. And if you make it to Deuteronomy 5 in the ninth verse, you'll hit our second commandment in the Bible. And it's the prohibition against idols. You know, God says you shall have no gods besides me, before me, alongside me, however you want to translate that. And you shall not make anything in their image. And then with the prohibition against idols, there is such an interesting statement. 
He says that he um, punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Has anybody ever read that and been a little perplexed? The God that we serve, you go, wait a minute. And of course, the last half of the verse is, is but he shows kindness to a thousand generations that love him. And you go, how does that work? Well, God limited our lifespans to the place that one man who lives long enough might affect three generations or possibly four. And that father's sin will affect everyone who lived in the household with him. There's no way around it. Ask Achan's children. Ask Achan's family pets. Ask the livestock that were put to death because of Achan's sin. But when a man gets born again, it goes way beyond his lifespan. It goes into the generations that go after him. And in the name of Jesus, we live in a time when generations are waking up. It may be that in former times we took it for granted. But in this day, I think everyone realized something's drawing close. And it's time to stand up and be counted for the Lord. Is there an amen in the house of God? I want to say that I believe that if you can gather together three or four generations of righteous people in one house, you can have a household that is a light to the neighbors. You can have something that is an example, not just of children and parents, but grandparents and great-grandparents who have not given up purpose, who have not given up life, but they're clinging to the supernatural God and believing that every day they still have a purpose to carry out. When children grow up in a house with those kind of influences, they don't dream of a retirement. They dream of working for God. They don't idolize music stars. They idolize those who usher in the presence of God. They look up to men and women who accomplish things for the king of kings. The foundation of everything that we do in the kingdom starts with a good marriage. Can somebody say amen? amen. Come on, you married guys better say amen louder than that. Amen. She's watching. Say it one more time. Amen. Genesis 2.18 is an interesting thing, but before we read that, let me just suggest to you that in Genesis 1.26, the scripture says that God made man in his own image. He made them male and female. He created them. But we only have Adam standing there in Genesis 1.26. In Genesis 1.28, he gives him man's mandate. And he tells him, you're going to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. You're going to multiply. You're going to replenish the earth. You're going to do so many things. And you only have a single human being standing there. Eve doesn't come along till the second chapter. But God said in Genesis uh, 2.18, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a hel helper suitable for him. This is such an interesting word in Hebrew. When we say helper, we tend to think, oh, well, Judah was Eric's helper on the job today. That means that Judah is a subordinate, that Judah is a gopher, that I point and say, go get my coffee, go get my hammer, go get... This is not at all the meaning of the Hebrew word. In fact, sometimes God is a helper to man. Anybody in here know Psalm 121 by heart? Amen. I will look unto the mountains from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and earth. Sorry I went King James on you. Or new King Jimmy. Sometimes even God is a helper. This word in Hebrew is an easer. 
And one of the things that I love about Alex and Haley the most is their relationship is not Alex the caveman and Haley the uh, obedient servant. Oh, she loves the Lord and she's obedient, but that's not how Alex lives and that's not how she lives. They have learned and are a good example of a couple that has learned. They have a joint calling that neither one can do without the other one. So an easer in Hebrew is that person which helps you accomplish what you could never do without them. Anybody believe that Adam received a call from God? What's wrong? Are y'all sleepy tonight? Is there anybody that believes Adam received a call from God? Yes. All right. Well, if you received a call from God, the, the, rand, the, the normal teaching is if he called you, then you can do it. Tell me something. How does Adam go forth and multiply? How does that happen? And I love the idea of subduing the earth. Now, I'm getting old and fat and weak, and probably everybody in the room could subdue me all by themselves. But... Ecclesiastes teaches two are better than one for a lot of reasons. And one of them is if one of you falls down, the other can pick them up. Another is if Judah had to subdue me, I bet he'd like Gabe's help. And friends, if you know anything about the Stephen's children, they may be a part on every other issue, but if you push one of them, they become instant brothers, right? God appointed for Adam a helper. And Adam didn't even know he needed it yet. Look what he's doing. It's verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. How interesting that in Hebrew, a name always has to do with something's function. It's almost as if God wanted to pass the creation before its earthborn ruler. And look at how it works so that he would see something was missing in his life. All right, dudes, I'm talking to you for a minute. Do you remember that day you realized something's missing in your life? I mean, this whole bachelor thing is cool, but not as cool as it once was. You are missing something. Yeah, look, John's nodding furiously back there. Amen. Amen. So the man gave names to all of the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There had never been a suggestion he would be looking for a helper. But his God knew if he put him in a certain position, Adam would realize his need. And that was the point. There came a time in Alex's life where he realized he needed a helper. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In the ancient world, bone is a sign of strength for obvious reasons. But flesh was a sign of weakness. In fact, in the Bible, flesh becomes idiomatic of weakness all the way through the New Testament, right? It seems that she was strong in places he was weak. And she was weak in places he was strong. It's almost like they were a perfect complement to each other. Now, let's flash back to a moment when we were children. Would you rather deal with just mom or just dad, or would you rather have the whole counsel of the family? My mama was too quick to beat me, and my daddy was too good at it. I wanted them both in the same room. And I wanted them in the same room because somewhere in that, we found a balance. Somewhere in that, the whole counsel of the household prevailed. God set it up so that it took a man and a woman to raise a healthy child. 
And look what he says here in the 24th verse. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. When Israel was founded, when the nation of Israel reconstituted its civil presence, they had to write a constitution. And when they wrote their constitution, they had to name an official language. They chose biblical Hebrew as their official language. Now, there's a problem with biblical Hebrew. It's wonderful, but it's limited. If we're only going to use the language of the Bible, what word do you use for airplane? What word do you use for cell phone? How do you do that when the language itself stopped evolving and you need words that, uh, for inventions? One of those inventions was superglue. Anybody use it? The rabbis were the first to make a suggestion. They said, when a man leaves his father and mother and he is united to his wife. That word in Hebrew is debak. That is also the modern word for superglue in the Bible. I mean, it comes right from the Bible. This is because the kind of love that Alex has for Haley, the kind of love I have for Jennifer, Matt has for Cass, the kind of love we see in Charlie and Joe, in Steve and Dee Dee every day is one that is irreversibly, permanently glued. Is it possible to separate? Yes, but you'll never be whole. You'll always be broken to pieces over it. You can glue the pages of your Bible together and then later try to separate them, but you'll never get a whole page out of it. It simply won't work that way. Are you beginning to see what's wrong with our society? We have lives that are torn apart like Swiss cheese everywhere. A healthy marriage is a must for what we're trying to do, for the mission we're on, for God's plan. From Genesis, we see that man learned of his need for a wife. We also see that man and woman were originally one. And what I mean by that is Eve was with Adam in a figurative sense. She's there at the commission, but he can't see her until she's pulled out of his side. How interesting that the first man was laid down and out of his side was pulled a bride. And the last Adam, Jesus the Christ, was lifted up and out of his side flowed blood and water from which he purchased a bride for himself. Now we leave our respective families. It's not that we don't love them. It's not that their advice is not invaluable. There needs to be the forming of a new household. Now, this has got to be a frustrating experience, and I've not been there yet. I've only seen the generations before me do this. How do you let people make mistakes that you know they're making? Is that a fair question? Charlie, you've had to watch this. How do you let a new couple go down a road that you know you've already done and it's not going to go well? But it's necessary. That's how you know it didn't go well. <laughs> but you stand there and you love them and you encourage them and you give advice when it's asked for because you love them. It's a change in relationship that's hard. It's called leaving and cleaving, and it's desperately hard. And one day, I will be put to the test in the same way. I got to watch Brandon form his own household. Where you at, Brandon? I love him. I'm proud of him. I believe that he can do it. And yet, I also am pretty well aware of everything he can't do, right? I mean, that's what fathers and sons do. I got to watch Cody leave our house and go form his own, right? It's a scary moment. We watch from a distance prepared to buy groceries when they didn't have food, you know. They're still here. This is an essential process 
commending our children into the faith of God. And one day, Alex and Haley will have to commend Weston, have to commend Hudson into the presence of God. And you talk about difficult. They will know things that Hudson and Weston could never know. And yet there's a way that they learned it. A foundational truth needs to be acknowledged in the beginning. Husbands and wives have to form a new entity under heaven. We're not going to read it here, but I'm going to tell you about it. If you want to take a note, you can look at Exodus 6.6. Exodus 6.6 is God speaking to the nation of Israel. They are still in Egypt. They're still in bondage to slavery. He gives them four promises. These four promises become the four cups of Passover. These four promises also become something else. They become the basis for every Jewish groom who would propose to a Jewish bride for the millennia to come. And it goes like this. God said, I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with mighty judgments and an outstretched arm, and I will take you to be with me. Say, what on earth does that have to do with marriage? Think about it, friends. I will bring you out from your parental authority. A yoke in the Bible is your present way of life. I will free you from the slavery or incomplete feeling of a single life. I will redeem you with selfless acts. I will lay down my life for you. Isn't that how a marriage covenant forms? And then you take them to be with you. One of the things that helps form all new marriage couples is adversity. It just does. And I've watched that couple go through their share of adversity. Some of it was even today, you know, in the parking lot. It happens. Life is very difficult. It's a full contact sport. And you can turn on the spouse that God gave you. And your children will watch that. And they'll learn that behavior. Or you can rush into each other's arms and rush into the presence of God. And your children will learn that. Are you satisfied that in the Adarmas household, those children are learning to rush into the arms of a loving God? Amen. Amen. I am too. This new joint venture of marriage, it has a purpose. Immediately after the fall, these battle plans are revealed. In Genesis 3.15, you hear this wonderful promise. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Who are we speaking to? The serpent. The serpent and whatever power was behind it. In Revelation 12, we hear him called that ancient serpent speaking to the devil. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What an amazing promise. Something was going to come from a woman that was meant to crush the head of the enemy. Now, one way to think about that is it is Christ. But it's also every member of the body of Christ that ever completes the body of Christ. When we say we are the family of God, when we say we are the church, when we say we are the body of Christ, maybe that's why Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not under Jesus' feet, under your feet, because you are Jesus' feet. As soon as these battle plans are revealed, there's opposition. One of the oppositions that happens is the roles in our new venture. They're attacked. When you hear Genesis 3.16, this is speaking to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. No amens out there, huh? 
With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This was not a punishment. It sounds to some like a punishment. It was a divine order, a divine structure with which God would bring salvation to the world. To the man, he says this, cursed is the ground. Didn't curse man. Cursed is the ground because of you. One translation says, cursed is the ground for your sake. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Your very work would drive you back to him. Anybody have a tough day today? Yeah. It gets your prayer life right? Yeah. Well, praise God for those thorns and thistles that came up after the fall. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. Now these are extraordinarily general terms but in the first generation of human beings we're told that she would bear children, desire and love her husband and he would provide direction and guidance for her and he would work to provide for her. That very concept is considered arcane and backwards now. And it's been going on since the first human beings. These roles overlap. They're not mutually exclusive. Praise God, my wife works harder in a day than an awful lot of men do. And I am so thankful for it. And yet her role is not to provide for the house. God gave that to me. And what do I do with it? I give it right back to God. And so what we have then is what the Jews call a flow of shalom. We're each trusting upon the one who's in authority above us. And our hope is that our children then grow up in that flow of authority and learn to trust the one who is above them. This purpose of the joint venture. Adam hears a promise. He looks at their respective roles and then he exuberantly declares something. This lady had never had a name before this. I mean, how basic is the word woman? In, in Hebrew, this is ish and isha. And ish is a dude. And isha is a man with a womb. That's awkward, isn't it? How are they referring to each other? I've never understood that. Every preacher in the world's made the joke when uh, Adam saw Eve, he said, wow, man. But I really don't think that was it. I really don't think that was it. I think that literally there's only two of them. And when there's only two of them, solely their function is what defined them. And that Adam heard something in the promise. When he heard Genesis 3.15, what he heard and focused on was not that he was going to have to work hard, not that there would be pain in childbirth for her. I think what he heard was, my goodness, somebody is going to come from you and he's the hope of mankind. Coming from your body is going to be Something that brings life on the very day that mankind had death introduced to it. And he named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. By the way, Eve means mother of the living. The foremost purpose in marriage is to produce offspring that would crush the enemy's head and bring life. When Alex and Haley set their hearts on having a child... And Weston came forth and they rejoiced. And then Hudson came forth and they rejoiced. They're on a narrow path of salvation and not on a broad path of destruction. Their lives are narrowing in on the purposes of God and they'll spend the rest of them pursuing it. Alex and Haley believe that they are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus 
to do good works. That faith has saved them and it was a gift from God and now they have a purpose on this planet. I'm saying that the primary purpose of every parent is to raise a child that learns to walk on spiritual powers. Luke 10 teaches us that we have authority over all the power of the enemy. Not some of it, all of it. To trample on snakes and scorpions. Now, these very ideas, I mentioned the word arcane earlier. In the day that we live in, people actually debate whether or not Paul was a chauvinist. I grew up in a, a school, because, uh, in a denominational school, and I, God, thank you for them. I got so many good things from that place. I also got a refuge from the public school I was thrown out of. Yeah, they, they didn't get as good of deal as I got in all of this. And one of the classes we had talked about the inherent tension between Paul and James, between faith and works. And then it spoke of Paul's character and used this very verse to say perhaps Paul had a bad view of women. I'd like to consider that for a second. That may be small for you to read. It's 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Boy, that could be said again. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. At this place in my life, I've spent more than 45 days in Israel. And I want you to know that Jewish children, when they are taught to pray, raise their hands before God. I'm not telling you you have to raise your hands. I grew up in a place where I was told if you raise your hands, you're simply seeking attention. The Bible says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Not men in some places, not men in charismatic churches, men everywhere. It is simply biblical, whether it is comfortable for us or not. Without anger or disputing, it seems that these things that have done so many things that are evil, God wants us to continually submit to Him in a sign of surrender. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. This is almost funny. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Aren't you glad this man never saw MTV or VH1? What would this line say? But with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. We're not speaking about hairstyles and clothing nearly as much as we're speaking about the attitude of a heart. And there's a reason. It's not that Paul has a bent against long hair like my Pentecostal brothers believe. It's not that he has a bent against jewelry like some believe. It's simply that he wants an attitude that Eve had. He said, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I want to submit to you that this is not a great translation. The word uh, learn is mathenito. It comes from mathetes. Mathetes is a discipleship word. It doesn't simply mean to learn. It means to imitate someone. The word quietness here means quietness in your spirit, not silence. He wants her to be discipled in peace and in shalom. That that was the role. That what Genesis said would be true. She would love her husband and he would administrate or rule. 
A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to disciple, teach, disciple, or to have authority over a man. She must be in peace. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived, and she became a sinner. Did he become a sinner? Of course. <laughs> of course. But women, or if you see a footnote in your Bible, she will be saved or restored through childbearing if they continue faith, love, and holiness and propriety. At first glance, you go, oh my God, Paul doesn't want women to talk. Paul wants women to shut up, learn from their husbands, and their job is to be barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. And this is what detractors say about the faith. And they're missing something that's beautiful, and we need to learn it. They're missing that the very hope of humanity came as women loved their husbands, loved the Lord, and bore children with right attitudes. You say, but wait a minute. If Christ has already come, then what's the role left? The body of Christ is not complete. Understand something. Romans 11 teaches there is a full number of Gentiles that must come in. And then God will again turn his attention to the Jewish nation. There is a number of people on the planet that God wants to save. If we stopped having children, where would the future apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists come from? If we stopped having children, how do you fulfill the great commission when this generation is gone? Boy, in this age of ridiculous prosperity preaching, in this age of parlor tricks that are supposed to be Holy Ghost movements, faddish Christianity, you really have to wonder, are we going to raise up children who will complete the Great Commission or does the earth go into a stall? I think it starts one life and one family at a time. As one woman embraces her role to help raise children and one man embraces his role to provide for that family, set an example for the children, and they take it seriously. I'm thrilled to death that the Adarmas family takes this seriously. Paul understood a pattern. He's teaching women everywhere to see the same hope as Eve had, that from their very bodies could come up a power that would crush the devil. For this to happen, everyone would have to love and embrace their roles. You know, I came from a background where it was considered backwards for a woman to want a family. If she didn't want a career and a BMW... Something was wrong with her. We were a bit of a social pariah because our highest goal in life was to have four or five children who loved the Lord. That was seen as backwards and wrong and from a time long ago. The Bible tells us that this is a worthwhile goal. It says nothing of the fact that you cannot have a career and raise children says nothing. In fact, read Proverbs 31 and you find what a career woman looks like. But somewhere along the way, the church became selfish. And so we've raised selfish children. And when we look around us, they have no regard for authority. YouTube is full of these events. Man is not independent of woman and woman is not independent of man. Corinthians 11 teaches us this. You know... The savior of the world, a man. And how did he get here? Through a scared little Jewish girl. 
It takes each of us embracing what God gave us. And if the Adarmist children are going to grow up and change the world, it's going to take each of them. And if you ever watch Haley teach a class here, you understand why God chose her. She has infinitely more patience than I do. She's gentle, and yet she finds a way to be firm. And if you've ever sat at a table, maybe at Taco Solis with Alex, and talked to him, you understand that this is not a man who jumps into things rashly. He meditates on them. He thinks about them. And particularly in financial matters, he seems to see things with almost a prophetic gifting. I'm thrilled to death to have his advice. It takes both. It takes both. Why then do you think marriage is under such attack around our country and around the world? Because if you can cripple the family, you are crippling a generation of believers who don't grow up learning that their mother is like the church and their father is an example of a pastor or an example of a father, even a heavenly father. We don't learn that. I say somewhere in this, couples have to take as their highest priority the role of raising their children. From the beginning, Satan has worked to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10 says that. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. We need to understand that godly roles for our lives are not limiting us. Those godly roles are not taking away from us the good life. They are giving us the good life. You know, if you meet a man who is destined to be a painter, but he is just dying with all of his heart to be a diesel mechanic, he is going to be a miserable man. When we know what we are called to do and we walk in that calling, we find fulfillment. And our lives have purpose and they have meaning. Is there not a lady out there that has ever thought, my God, all I, all I do all day is change diapers and raise children? Few of you are bold enough to raise your head. It said that John G. Lake's mom raised her hands before the Lord in prayer one time. And she said, Lord, what is my calling? She said, he spoke to her and said, to raise your sons. She had four. And in typical Yankee fashion, where's Al? Typical Yankee fashion with kind of a dry wit, she's reported to have said, what do you think I was going to do with them? Not meaning to be disrespectful, but being honest. Like, of course, Lord, I knew that. What other great thing? All four of her sons sparked continental revival. She couldn't know that. She died before the first revival ever started. She couldn't know that. And yet, if that one woman didn't do what she was supposed to do, then four different continents would not have had revival in their time. Oh, my goodness. Think about what's at stake in this. The devil has worked to steal the promises of God from our hearts, and we have to raise up a standard that says, no, I will not be stolen from. He's worked to kill our children, literally and figurative source of redemption. Literal, because if there are not children to complete God's plan, then God's plan is not complete. Figurative because... Every generation brings the hope of the return of Messiah. You could see this so clearly in Genesis 3 and 4. In Genesis 3, there's a break between man and God. In Genesis 4, man is killing man. You want to know what your thermometer is like? 
You want to look at getting your finger on the pulse of what your relationship with the Lord is like? Look around and see how you treat those closest to you. If your vertical relationship is right, it puts your horizontal relationship right. 1 John 1.5 says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. You want to know how you're doing in the presence of God. It will show up in the presence of your friends. Mostly, he's worked to destroy our marriage covenant so that we do not produce the fruit that God intended. I think one of the most sickening indictments I've ever heard, and it unfortunately is true, is the supposed church has the same divorce rate as the world. Have you all ever heard that? You can talk to me tonight. I, if you don't, I, I'm going to cry and run off, and then what will we do? Have you all heard that? Yes. It makes you wonder who's the church, huh? Because the church is supposed to be full of men and women that honor a covenant with God above all else. If the divorce rate is actually the same in the church, and it really is the church. That is a sad state of affairs. Somewhere in this, friends, and I'm not beating on anybody in here that's had a divorce, we have to raise up faithful generations. And they're going to learn faithfulness from watching us be faithful. Malachi 2.13 is a scripture that people have quoted before, but not usually in its whole context. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because she, you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. The word partner there insinuates the other half of a calling. Wonder why we have so many Christians that are ineffectual in their calling. They might be missing the other half of their calling. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. Look at this wording. And why? Because He was seeking godly offspring. We hear that God hates divorce, which is the 16th verse, and you hear it preached, but why? He hates it because He wants something out of your marriage covenant. When he called couples in this church to be married and couples in every godly church to be married, he wanted something from them, spiritual and natural children. And he wanted them to learn to walk in the footsteps of the faith. That has to be our highest goal. It has to be our highest. It's more important than the car you drive. It's more important than the house you live in. It's more important than the amount of money you make or the prestige that you have from your friends. The highest goal in life has got to be to give God His godly offspring. If the generations before us did not do it, you could not be here. I love what Ronald Reagan said about abortion. He said, I've noticed that everyone who is for it has already been born. What an astute observation. You know, we owe a debt to the people that went before us and lived selflessly enough for us to be here. You know, every year we have fewer children as a country. That's not true of Islam. That's not true of Mormonism. But it is true of the American Christian. Could it be that we've become obsessed 
with what it costs to have children instead of what we gain when we have them? I don't think any more will come from our bodies. Jen and I are probably done. Probably. Most likely. But I surely hope we have the opportunity to raise up sons and daughters around the world. I surely hope we have the opportunity to adopt another thing that I hold in the highest regard in the Adarmis family. They don't just want to raise their own flesh and blood children. They want to raise children they believe God is giving them. Friends, I would not be standing here before you today if some man who I was not blood related to had not loved me just like I was his son. And on the day that I buried him, I told the whole world it was the first genuine picture of Jesus I ever saw. I knew I didn't belong to him and he loved me just like I did. He credited me with sonship. Adoption is a noble thing. One day, Weston and Hudson will have children, not children, will have siblings that may come from the nations. How exciting is that? Friends, we have to work against marital division of any kind. We have to work against whatever may worm its way into our house to separate us. It's funny how subtle it can be. It's easy when it's a guy. When it's a guy, it's almost always something that's sight-driven, you know, and I don't have to go into great detail about what that is. But it's not hard. It's painted on every billboard. It's painted on every magazine. With the ladies, it's often more subtle. It's simply the thought of what would life have been like if I'd had that white picket fence and, you know, the swing and whatever. And before long, you're imagining lives you don't have and resenting the one that you do. I want to tell you that you are right where God put you. He has been working in the events of your life, and if Acts 17 is true, he set certain boundaries for you so that you could reach out and find his will no matter where you were because he's not far from you. And that he's working in that to order your footsteps so that you can look back, Psalm 37 says, in delight in them. I believe that he has a glorious life plan for the Adarmas household. And that Weston and Hudson will grow up in the favor of God and be infinitely more confident and secure because they're right with God than any worldly thing you could give them. Mark 10 teaches us to be one with each other. And I've already spoken with you enough about that. Let's look at Genesis 18. Specifically, why did God call Abraham? What an interesting thing. Abraham began a nation. Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham went to war with kings and won. He is the man who instituted circumcision. He is the person who is considered the founder of Judaism. And none of those reasons are why God chose him. Genesis 18, 18. Abraham will surely become a great nation, a powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. Does that sound grandiose? I mean, who would not be excited to hear that? What was God's grand battle plan? Verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him. The biggest calling you could have still relates to the daily operation of your family. Abraham, 
Through you, I'm going to bless everyone on, on the planet, on the globe. You're going to be a kind, Romans 4 says, of heir of the world. And where does it begin and end? Direct your children. How? By good teaching? How? By a good talking to? No, by doing what is just and right. Our children learn from what they see us do daily. That's why the Bible calls it a walk of faith and not just a prayer of faith. They watch how we walk and they learn to imitate us. You remember the little humorous picture with my daughter at two years old? She sees her mother put on certain kind of clothing. So what is she trying to do at two years old? Put on that kind of clothing. Doesn't fit. It's ridiculous. It's, it's way too early. It's all of, they imitate you in good ways and bad ways a long time before you ever realize that they're watching. It's important, friends. And not just in a negative way, it's important in the most positive of ways. How do you change every nation on the globe according to the 18th verse? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. What was the means to do that? Direct your family well. Oh my goodness. You ever thought, well, I'm just a family man? I mean, Billy Graham is a great preacher, but I'm just a family man. So was Abraham. And the whole planet has been blessed through his relationship with the Lord because he was called a friend with God. What is the God of the universe invested in you? And what did he intend to be passed on to the next generation? Psalm 78 is a great psalm. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things. Things from old, what we have learned and have known, what our fathers have told us. How did they learn them? Their fathers told them. If the Older Testament was assembled in the days of Ezra, there were writings that predated Ezra by far. Moses dictated the first five books of the Bible. Have to wonder what he did with that verse that says, now Moses was the most humble man on the planet. <laughs> They are the books of Moses, and yet they were assembled in Ezra's day. What was the primary way then that fathers and sons and mothers and daughters learned the word of God? It wasn't by sending each other to Sunday school. They talked about them. They memorized them. They loved them. They tried to hide the word in their hearts. Verse 4 we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob, established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. Why? Verse 6, So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they would in turn would tell their children they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds but would keep his commands. Saints, our relationship with the Lord is supposed to be where the others start, and it's supposed to grow progressively through the generations. We cannot be satisfied with the minimum. It's not okay to learn your 14 points of doctrine of the church of your choice and camp there alone. That is a great place to start. But when do you sit down and share with your children? 
the time that you were in the gutter and the Lord lifted you out. Because when you read Psalm 34, that's what David's doing with us. When do you share with your children? Many things I have seen, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. When do you share that? Well, when it's been your experience, you share it. When we experience the Lord and then we share our experiences with the children and not just carting them to... It is a wrong idea to think we are raising our kids in a godly or Christian environment because they're Christian educated and go to church. No, that's where they go to church. That's where they're educated. Where do they live? We said all the right things on Sunday, even for most of the years I was being raised. But we thought an awful lot more of our favorite football team. I mean, that's just the truth. We thought an awful lot more of our family vacations and whatever else we wanted to do. Our lives were essentially selfish. And so surrounded by religion at every turn, I needed to be born again. These kids have a chance to start in a different place. I don't blame anybody that went before me. I made every mistake they did and then a bunch they never did. And a bunch I haven't told them about and may never. I don't know if they could take it, Jim. Proverbs tells us to do something with our children. I want you to know this is one of the most misunderstood and misquoted verses in the Bible, and it's why we're doing this tonight. Proverbs 22, 6. Train a child in the way he should go. Does anybody else have a footnote there? Might say start a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. What you usually hear is, well, I raised him right, so although he's living like a complete sluggard and a hellion, I know he'll come back. They quote this verse to mean, well, I, I brought him to church, so even though he's living like a total devil, he will repent and come back. That is not what this verse says. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. He will walk in it all the days of his life. Not he'll go live like hell and later repent. The reason that we don't like to quote the verse correctly is because it, it puts a responsibility on us that we're uncomfortable with. We want to believe that we did everything we could and we did everything right. And if you've already raised your children, then I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to those who are still raising their children. That is a cop-out in the first-class order. The way that your children goes will depend on how you trained them. And when we think of training in any other thing, it's not just starting them. It's not firing a gun and sending them on a race. Training them has to do with daily interaction. That Strong's word there, that chonach, means to initiate, discipline, dedicate, and train up. It's not enough to simply tell these young men the word of God one time. We find out from the scripture, look at, Examples of biblical training. Here comes Exodus 12. Anybody know what Exodus 12 is off the top of your head? It's the Passover, the birth of the nation of Israel. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you, as He has promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you... Anybody gone through that stage where your kids ask Oh, my goodness. Abby was in bed with me the other night because her mama's been in the hospital an awful lot. 
Where you at, Abby? You in here? And I love to spend time with my girl. Y'all, that is Abigail, and I love her. Abby can ask questions without breathing. It is not necessary for her to inhale. She only exhales as long as questions are involved. And the only one that was ever more inquisitive than Abigail was Judah. Judah, I think, one time asked more than a thousand questions without breathing. <laughs> they get to an age where they're like, why, Daddy? But, but, but why? But, but, but why? God built that into these kids, not to annoy a parent, because it is our job to train them. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Not what does it mean to the nation of Israel. Not what does it mean from an abstract theological position. Mommy, Daddy, what does it mean to you? Then tell them. Boy, an awful lot could be done if we simply had an experience with the Lord and then we shared those experiences with our children. Look at Deuteronomy 6. It might be the most active of all of them. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gate. Could we squeeze another action word into a scripture? Think of it. Talk, sit, walk, lie down, get up, tie them, bind them, write them. Could there be anything that is more active in the Word than the way that we are supposed to address our children? And if you're doing it when you wake up and when you lay down, what's left out? If you're doing it whether you're walking or sitting, what is left out? See, this is not taking someone to church on Sunday, at least not only. It's living a godly example, telling them of your experiences, talking to them about your walk with the Lord all day, every day. If you're in here and you have a child, I promise they want your attention. They are built to need your attention as much as they need the next breath. And we have to give it to them because the generations coming are dependent upon it. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead... Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You know, on late night television, you might be able to buy a pill that makes you prettier and wealthier immediately for $19.99. But most of us, if we want to get fit, know we have to train. If we want to get slim, know we have to diet. And we know inherently if somebody is trying to convince you there's a quicker, easier way, it's because they're selling you something. Why do we take the easiest, quickest route with our own children? I want to tell you that it's not quick, it's not easy, but the results are worth it. Anybody struggle to discipline your children even in public? Oh, man, I thought I just wanted to go out to eat this one night, you know? I mean, really, we're going to have to make a scene here? Well, what happens if you don't? What kind of precedent are you setting if you don't, if you're unwilling to sacrifice what you wanted for what they need, what, what happens? I'm not going to read to you 1 Timothy. If you write down 1 Timothy 1, 
3 through uh, 1, the first letter to Timothy, the third chapter, and the first 13 verses, I'm going to submit to you that the fourth verse, the eighth verse, and the tenth verse all demand of any ministry leader that their home is the primary criteria by which they be judged. Not whether they speak well, not whether they raise funds well, not whether they have a perfect uh, academic pedigree. The criteria by which you choose leaders are their children. And why? Because God chose men who would direct their households well to change the world. I think it's very strange that we have settled for leaders we know nothing about. And that's not a commentary on everyone else. That is a commentary on us. What makes somebody in this church an effective leader? It's the way that they raise their own families first. This is what's at stake, and I'm proud that the Adarmas are doing well in it. Ministry flows from the home. The reason ministry flows from the families is families are the very building block of ministry. If we fail to obey God's word in training our children... The results are painful. Proverbs 29, 15 says this, The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. Is that harsh? Yeah, I think it's harsh. Sometimes the word of God is like bitter herbs. Other times it's like unleavened bread. And it's both. And when you take the communion, you are promising that even if it crucifies your flesh, you are united with him in his death. But when we read a harsh scripture, we'd like to apply it anywhere else. Why is it a disgrace to a mom if a child's left to himself? Because it was her primary responsibility. That's why. Does that mean it doesn't disgrace the father? Not at all. I've watched Haley, and she got busy children, like I've got busy children. It's a full-time job. I watch her get tired, and I watch Alex comfort her and encourage her that the direction she's going in is the right direction. I'm confident those kids are going to turn out right because their parents are not lazy. Proverbs 24:30 is an agricultural example, but it's one you should be able to draw an understanding from. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of a man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. What does it take to raise children that are disgraced to parents? Nothing. It just requires you to not do very much. Y'all know I read an interview of the parents of the men who are responsible for the Columbine massacre. Their parents thought they were pretty good kids. The fact that they listened to death metal music and spent all day, every day playing games that glorified killing people, they didn't think was strange. It didn't bother them at all because it allowed the parents to do what the parents wanted to do without interference. The school said they were pretty good kids. The court-appointed psychiatrist that had been treating them for three years had just given them a complete pass and clean slate. wonder how the parents of the other children feel about that. You know, most of our nation claims to be born again, but don't think their neighbors are. 
One of the phenomenon I experienced in a private school is everybody's pretty convinced that the crowd's the problem and not their child, and nobody thinks their child's a part of the crowd. We have a nation without responsibility. If we could simply take responsibility, we could avoid some pitfalls. How many of you love the Lord? I mean, really love the Lord. Love the Lord like Gideon? Love the Lord like Eli? Love the Lord like Samuel? Love the Lord like David or Solomon? I want you to understand loving the Lord is not enough. We have to be active. Gideon conquered kingdoms for God. But one of his sons, a man named Ahimelech, killed 69 of his brothers in a single day on a stone. So is Gideon a success or failure? I'm going to leave that up to the Lord of glory. But we, we look at what Gideon did. He was mighty in battle. We look at what Gideon did. He threw out a fleece. Gideon raised a murderer for a son and his entire family line was cut off in a single day. Don't you have mixed feelings about that? Eli judged Israel for 40 years, but he refused to discipline his sons. 1 Samuel 2.12 says his children were a disgrace. Samuel, has there ever been a prophet or judge like Samuel? But his sons, Abijah and Joel, were perverted and accept bribes. 1 Samuel 8, 3 says they did not walk in the ways of their dad. So was he a success or a failure if his primary responsibility was his home? David had a heart after God. He killed giants, was a great king. One of his sons was a rapist. One of them led an insurrection and slept with his wives on the palace roof. And he had constant familial infighting, success or failure. Well, at least we have that verse about David in Acts 13 that says he fulfilled his purpose in his generation. I would submit to you that that's not enough. I'm going to hit my mark in my generation come hell or high water. But my job as a daddy is to help my little ones hit their mark as well. I want you to understand something. If your parents have ever done something and they love the Lord and loved you, if they've ever done something you don't understand, something that you think was wrong, at least their motivations were to stay involved in your life. And hopefully they're trying to give you a leg up on something that you don't understand. You still have a responsibility to hear from God yourself. That's what an independent household is. But you shouldn't be upset with them. Can you imagine what it is like to raise something from embryo to adulthood? Love it, cherish it. Watch them learn to reciprocate love to you. And then one day, what used to be obligatory is now merely advice. How hard that must be. You know, I face that with two of my adopted sons and I'm about to face it with my oldest biological son. We're progressing towards that every day. All I can say is we should have mercy for those that have gone before us. Look at what some of the greatest men in the Bible did. Solomon is said to be wise beyond measure. His son split the kingdom that is God's. I mean, can you imagine that? We've had church splits. Not us, but people have church splits, right? Good churches. Things happen. It's a contact sport. It's difficult. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, 
And a guy named Jeroboam, son of Nebat, ripped 10 tribes from 12 so that the example of God's priesthood on the earth was actually in civil war for hundreds of years. Was Solomon a success? Wow, I bet he had a serious regret. We're approaching that time. It's fitting that we should look at right examples now that we know what's at stake. Luke 1. I wrote down 26 through 38. I didn't put it all on the screen because most of you know the story. Mary's a virgin pledged to be married. An angel, Gabriel, shows up and says, You're highly favored. Don't be afraid. You'll be with child. I don't know about you. I've never been a, a young, virtuous woman. I was actually never a young virtuous man, if you get right down to it. I can't think of a more frightening thing in the world than what that angel tells her. Hey, don't be afraid. You're highly esteemed. You're going to be with a baby. I mean, come on, Lindsay. You want to go home and tell Daddy? No, Daddy, I've never touched a man, but the baby's from God. Can you imagine that? Now, let's just look at historical context for a minute. If she's like most Jewish brides of the time, she's somewhere between 14 and 18. Let that sink in for just a minute. No, Daddy, Joseph never touched me. Uh, this was from God. What's the first thing the angel told her? Don't be afraid. That's because she had to have great faith to fight off that fear. I mean, I cannot personally imagine having to do that. Look at her response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. That is the heart of an amazing parent. Why was she picked? Because even if it meant her life was ridiculed, if she was the source of public scorn, if she could produce a child that would advance the cause of the kingdom, no matter what it meant to her, she said, may it be unto me as you have said. Well, you talk about bold faith, an example for every woman everywhere. That's not a Catholic thing, friends. That's a godly thing right there. Mary saw parenting as a way of serving the Lord. She selflessly wanted his will, even if it meant she suffered as a result. Manoah, this is Samson's daddy. His mama doesn't have a name in the scripture. She was sterile. And yet an angel shows up and says, you'll conceive. He says, your son's going to be a Nazarite. Now listen to what that meant for her. It's great the boy's going to be a Nazarite, but it meant she couldn't drink wine. It meant that she couldn't eat anything that a Nazarite didn't eat. How many of you know your children's callings are going to affect yours too? At some place there's a switch in your life where it's not about you anymore. It really is about them. Boy, when you see a parent get that wrong, it's a sad thing. When they have far past their prime and they have not taught, uh, given a baton to their child, it is a sad thing. This woman, from the moment she becomes pregnant, her diet has to change. And now, not drinking wine in Israel, by the way, means that every one of the seven feasts you have a peculiar role in now because all of them involve wine. Your very social structure is now changed. Look at verse 8. This is what her husband said. 
Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah. There was nothing in it for them except sacrifice. And what is the one thing they're asking of God? Just teach us how to do it. We want to with all of our heart. Could you think of a... And we don't even know his wife's name. How about this one? Miss Hannah. In 1 Samuel, you know what's happened. She's weaned the son that she prayed for. She had gone to the temple earlier. Her husband didn't look with favor upon her, or rather her husband's wife. Eli, the priest, thinks she's a drunkard. And now she's weaned the boy after God has given him to her. And she goes back to the same priest who's treated her badly. <laughs> How many of you would go back to the same church where the pastor accused you of being drunk just because you were praying? But she did. You know, there was a man in my family four generations ago that was accused of drunkenness when he was just happy. He was going from one church uh, meeting to his home. The pastor overheard him singing on a mule. That's how long ago this was. And preached a sermon that was aimed at him. And pastors do that sometimes. I'm going to go ahead and apologize for all pastors. Four generations of my family went to hell because one man got offended. Now, I'm upset that the pastor did that, but I'm a whole lot more upset that my relative let that offense settle in to the point where if you read our family history, we go from generations of Bible names to some of the worst hellions the planet ever produced for four generations in a row. And why? Because one man couldn't handle the offense from one preacher. Oh, that is so sad. I mean, if you just read that uh, four generations of a family at a family reunion were caught on fire, everybody would gasp. But then this is subtle spiritual warfare, and this is how this happens. It will take courage for Alex and Haley to keep their life on the straight and narrow path. And what depends on it are their very children. You know, that's a lot different than could we just have the kids up and pour some holy water on their head or something? Maybe that's why we've reduced these to mere religious rituals. Listen to Hannah's prayer. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give to him, I give him to the Lord. One of my favorite internet videos is one called That's My Hudson. It's a pastor named Eric Ludi who is in Liberia, and he sees children that are starving, and he's just had a son named Hudson. And in the moment that he's looking at these children, the Lord's Spirit speaks to him and says, that is my Hudson, meaning that child is to me a son like your child is to you. And he said it occurred to him that if this really was his Hudson and he was going to bed hungry every night and he was going to bed scared every night, he would call everybody he knows and say, if you ever loved me, if you ever called yourself my friend, you will go help my son because I can't get there. He said, that's exactly what the Lord said to him. If you've ever called yourself my friend, you will take care of my children. You know, I shared that with Alex. And he has a heart like Eric Ludi. He has a heart for the children that he hadn't even met yet. 
probably in some other country. If he can have a heart, and Haley can have a heart for children they haven't met yet, I know they have a heart for the children that God has already given them. That gives me great hope as their pastor, and I am proud to be their pastor. I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Hannah gave the entire child's life to the Lord. Alex, Haley, y'all ready for vows? When we dedicate babies, it's more about what the parents are going to do than what the children are going to do. Because what the parents do determines what the child will do. Y'all can come up here and please bring your family with you. I mean, if you don't mind. My personal belief, yes, get your boys. My personal belief is that it takes the entire community of God to raise children. Any of you women in here ever had your child have a fever and you had to call somebody and say, what do I do? Any of you guys in here ever said, I just got this question from my son and I don't know what to do? I, I was raising two sons and I was getting pretty good at that and then I was surprised I had a little girl. I'd call Matthew and say, look, Jennifer made the terrible mistake of leaving me with her for the day and I've got my first serious diaper and I just don't know how to deal with all this anatomy what do you do and Matthew pretty well walked me through it like we were walking through an electrical diagram and I'm happy to say Abby has survived oh, we're grabbing them hey man Hudson come on down here grab that microphone do y'all know where it's at oh here it is Matthew, you hold the microphone for him. Hey, this is a beautiful family, isn't it? <laughs> All right, Alex, Haley, y'all will answer, and it's understood that your family supports you in this. Like Mary and Joseph, will you view parenting as your service to the Lord? Like Manoah, will you ask for and accept the instruction from the Lord regarding training Hudson in righteousness? Yes, we will. Like Hannah, will you yield your will for Hudson's life to God's will, acknowledging and acting as if his whole life belongs to the Lord? Yes. Finally, will you train him through your actions and discipleship to love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, we will. Church, will y'all support them in this endeavor? Yes. Do you take that seriously? Yes. Can we have an amen that is not like a Buddhist temple? Yes. Yes. Come on now. Will y'all take it seriously? We want the elders then to come lay hands on these boys. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we're going to pray for them. And Susan, you can move forward. One more. <laughs> a little bit of humor before we... Uh, is that not a great photo? <laughs> Hudson, we're looking forward to great things from you, man. Church, y'all stand to your feet. We're going to pray for and dedicate these children... Brother Charlie, Brother Steve.
Amen. Father God, we just come before you, Lord God, and we pray for this family, Lord God. As your anointing be upon them, Lord God, that you give them the wisdom and the direction, Lord God, of your Holy Spirit and your power concerning these children, Lord God. That you give them the strength, Lord God, to train them up in the way that they should go. Lord God, I pray that your anointing comes forth, Lord God, upon them and in their direction as you, you train them up, Lord God, that their calling be evident, Lord God, in their lives, Father God, as they begin to direct them, Father God. We pray for your Holy Spirit and your power, Lord God, in their life. In Jesus' name, we thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord God.